Do you have an idea for a podcast, but you don't know where to start? Maybe you're overwhelmed by all the tech or you're convinced nobody will actually listen to you. Well, I'm Shauna Game. After nine and a half years as a professional podcaster, at this show, everyone's talking money. And 25 million downloads later, let me tell you the secret to a profitable podcast. It is building a solid foundation, your podcast roadmap before you launch. That's why I created the Podcaster Class, a fast-paced group cohort podcasting for profit eight-week style NBA program. The Podcaster Class is immersive, comprehensive, and insanely motivational. If you want to create a podcast, DIYing a launch is just not the way to go. In the Podcaster Class, you'll get the tools, tips, and strategies to create a podcast that resonates with listeners and one you can be proud of. Get this. 90% of podcasters never make it to episode three. That's 2.8 million podcasters who just quit. So to be a top podcaster, you only need to publish 21 episodes, but you got to make them good. So in the podcaster class, I'm taking the mystery out of how to create, launch, and profit from your podcast so you can create a top 1% podcast just like this one. The May cohort is now open for enrollment. Classes start May 22nd. There are only 15 spots open. You are going to learn podcasting with me and 14 other amazing people. You can learn all the details at thepodcasterclass.com. Use code podcast when you sign up for $100 off. That's thepodcasterclass.com. You know, I'm a big fan of enjoying life while still being smart financially. That's why I love ButcherBox. I can get a variety of high quality meat, seafood, chicken, and pork at an amazing value all with exclusive member deals delivered to my door with free shipping always. One thing I just never wanted to cut out of my spending plan is eating good food. And with ButcherBox, I don't have to, and neither do you. Where else can you get free protein for a whole year? Yes, you heard that right. One of my favorite go-to dinners is a salmon bowl. I'm not even a huge salmon lover, but ButcherBox's wild-caught salmon is Oh, so good. I make a nice little marinade, saute some veggies, cook the salmon, and throw in some weiss. And it is an amazing dinner. If you want to take less trips to the grocery store and always have prepared meat in the freezer for a lot less money, you need ButcherBox in your life. Sign up at butcherbox.com etm and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. You can choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash etm. Hey, welcome back to Everyone's Talking Money. I am your host, Shauna Game. It is so good to have you with us. If you're new, welcome. If you are a longtime listener, wow, thank you so much for tuning into another episode. This, we're going to do things a little bit differently. I was recently a guest on Catching Up to Five podcast, one of my very, very favorite podcasts about teaching you strategies and ideas if you're particularly a late starter when it comes to investing and and figuring out all of this money stuff, right? So how do you get financial independence later in life? They have so many amazing episodes. Well, I was recently a guest a couple of weeks ago and we talked all about money trauma and I shared 
a lot of insights, some personal stories, and so many great tips and exercises and different things that you can do if you find yourself stuck in money trauma. So I wanted to play the entire episode for you. So that is what you're going to hear on this episode. If you enjoyed this, please go to the show notes and go over and check out Catching Up to Fi's podcast. I think you're really going to love it. All right, let's start talking. What are the motivations that actually create change in someone? And what are the things that stop them from making change? Because people would hire me and pay me a couple thousand dollars to create a financial plan. And then in three to six months, they would call me back and say, okay, I haven't done anything or I'm really still stuck or there was always something that kind of came up. I just started to realize that that a lot of us have some form of money trauma, which I know we're going to talk about. Uh, a lot of us have a money story that we don't understand from our childhood. We don't understand the impact that our childhood might be carrying through today to the decisions that we make or don't make with our money. And also that, I mean, really honestly, even people who had a, a, a ton of money, you would look at them and say, there's no way they have any fears around money. And they do. They have mountains of fears the way a lot of the rest of us do. I think largely in our society, we are ingrained with being numb to debt. It's just a fact of life. The credit card debt problem, the student loan debt problem, the personal loan debt problem. You can afford a car if you can afford the payment. And we just carry this. And we don't necessarily realize what kind of a burden how we are enslaved to the system, to the financial services industry, and we do it, and then we're all of a sudden locked into a 40-year career, and we can't retire early. Welcome to Catching Up to Fi, a podcast on mindset, money, and life for late starters of any age on their journey to financial independence. I'm Bill, and I'm a late starter. I'm Becky, and I'm also a late starter, and we're your hosts. We're here to help you with your journey to financial independence, no matter where you're starting from. We're going to talk to experts, other late starters, and explore topics related to our mission. Join us as we catch up to Fi together. Hello, and welcome back to Catching Up to Fi. I'm Bill Yount with Becky Heptig, and today we're talking to Shana Game. Shana is a certified financial planner, entrepreneur, author of the Money Mindset Journal, speaker, and the host of Everyone's Talking Money podcast. As a serial entrepreneur, she's always been intentional about setting herself apart from the pack. In her early 20s, Shauna created the nation's first student film festival, which helped hundreds of undergrads get jobs in the entertainment industry. She eventually sold the festival to a top Hollywood executive and went on to a successful career as a certified financial planner, financial literacy professor, and public speaker. But the creator in her never never went away. Over the past seven years, she's been able to help alleviate suffering, stumbling blocks, and anxiety around money for millions of listeners. I believe she just crossed 25 million downloads on her podcast. So congratulations. Shauna says it's been one of the most fulfilling things she's ever had the pleasure to do. Shauna, welcome to Catching Up to Fi. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. All right. Well, we'd like to start up with a little, the introduction is not that extensive. We want to hear a little bit about 
not just your money story, but your story in general. Can you take us back and take us through your evolution to all of these interesting pursuits? <laughs> well, I never thought I would be the host of a money podcast or be doing what I'm doing now, certainly. But I tell people I've been an entrepreneur, I think, since I came out of the chute uh, as a little baby. I just, I've always loved ideas and I love stories and helping connect people. And so I started a film festival when I was in college, ran that for five years. And after that, I was, I was pretty perplexed of what I was going to do. I went and got an MBA and I thought, what do I do with all these weird set of skills that I have? And my father had been in the financial in industry his whole career. And he said, I'm kind of bored. He had a small financial firm and he said, why don't you come work with me? And I thought, okay. And it was great. Day one, I was working with people who had $100 million plus estates and really got to kind of cut my teeth and, and see how similar we really are when it comes to money. And regardless of how much money someone makes, we all have pretty much the same hangups and worries and fears around money. And I started my podcast back in 2015 and again, had no idea that people would actually tune in and listen to me talk about money. And so it's been a great journey. And I, I love what I do. And I love being able to help people really dive into the behavioral side of money, which I feel is the missing link when it comes to traditional financial planning. Oh, I agree. There's so much to handling your money besides the math. And a lot of times, especially those of us that have more of an engineering kind of brain, that's where we want to go is the black and white math, but there is so much behind it. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but you practiced as a CFP for a yes. period of time, right? Right. Yeah, I practiced for about 13 years. Okay. And you discovered some interesting things about your clients in that period of time about the way they approached the plans that you had come up with for them. Would you talk about that for a minute for us? Yeah, I realized really early on that, again, regardless of the amount of money that somebody made, my role was more of a therapeutic role than it was actually a planner role. I mean, the plan was the basis of what they hired me to do. But what I really started to realize is that, or I, I should say what really started to interest me was what are the motivations that actually create change in someone? And what are the things that stop them from making change? Because people would hire me and pay me a couple thousand dollars to create a financial plan. And then in three to six months, they would call me back and say, okay, I haven't done anything, or I'm really still stuck, or there was always something that kind of came up. And so what I really realized was it wasn't really just about the numbers on the piece of paper. It was really about the subcontext of what was going on and in relationships. And I, I did a lot of work with couples. And that's always fascinating work because you have two people who don't understand their own relationship with money, and then they're coming in and trying to manage this thing together. And so... I just started to realize that that a lot of us have some form of money trauma, which I know we're going to talk about. Uh, a lot of us have a money story that we don't understand from our childhood. We don't understand the impact that our childhood might be carrying through today to the decisions that we make or don't make with our money. 
And also that, I mean, really, honestly, even people who had a a, a ton of money, you would look at them and say, there's no way they have any fears around money. And they do. They have mountains of fears the way a lot of the rest of us do. So it really was interesting to realize that we are all so much alike, but because we don't talk about money, it kind of stays in the shadows. Well, you mentioned that your dad was a financial planner. That doesn't always mean that you're good with your money. We've talked to accountants who have had disastrous personal finances. And so you grew up in ostensibly the perfect environment to learn about money, manage your money. Is that how it worked out? Or did you have money traumas as a young adult too or young child? <laughs> yeah, it would have been nice that it worked out really well. It didn't. It was interesting, I think, back my own childhood. And there was very much an air of perfectionism. My dad was definitely somebody who he loved to work, but he worked all the time. And he would always say to me, if you're not number one, like, why do anything? And so that really was hard for me to understand and digest as a kid. Like I didn't have a frame of reference for how to manage that. And then we didn't talk about the foundational things about money. We didn't talk about how do you create a budget? We didn't talk about what's the proper way to save money? Like We didn't talk about those things. So what I saw was, okay, when we would go shopping, my mom would go straight to the sales racks and she would buy things on clearance. So even though we could afford to buy something that wasn't on clearance, like that's just what we did. And so I, I definitely carried that through into my adulthood thinking, okay, wait, what's going on here? I've got this kind of mixed message. And there were a lot of things that were just missing. And I think that Even if you grew up in a household where your parents were smart financially or knew even how to handle their own money, a a lot of the the lessons and kind of the core foundations around money just aren't passed down to kids in a way that can help them build a foundation to go forward. Well, do you think that our learnings about money are genetic, environmental? What percentages do you think that is? I mean, do we come out of the shoot with predetermined? approaches to money? Or is it all learned from mentoring from our parents? It's a really interesting question, Bill. And I think there isn't enough of uh, studies done yet to, to kind of determine that split. But I will say that I think a large percentage of it is what we witness, what we see, what we hear, what we feel around money. The science shows that between zero and seven, that is when our subconscious is being formed. And that really is the time where our money patterns, our money habits, our money thoughts, beliefs, all of that is is being sort of cemented inside of us. And so I think that when we get older and we get to an adult and we think like, I know that I should be doing something different, but I'm not doing something different. Like, why is that? Mm-hmm. We can go back to that time period, first seven years and really examine, okay, what went on? What was talked about? What wasn't talked about money? So I think a large part of it is environmental, but when we look at money trauma, there is definitely a lot of research around generational money trauma. We can look back at slavery. We can look back at parents who went through uh, the Great Depression. And I would imagine the last couple of years kind of going forward for people who had kids, like that will be a real momentous time to mark another big trend in money trauma. So I think there is definitely a genetic component that, that kind of comes along with it. Well, it seems to involve our parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous systems, really the 
fight or flight response or freeze response, as opposed to a vegetative response where you're kind of in peace with money and life. We jumped right into money trauma, but we didn't define it. Let's jump back a little bit and give us your perception as a money trauma specialist, what it really is. Yeah, money trauma is a psychological emotional response to an event or an experience that is really triggering. And so when we talk about money trauma, right, that event or experience would be something money related. And I say that money trauma is really something that is felt, right? You feel it in your body. And I think that's why it's hard for a lot of us to identify it, but it really is a somatic experience. So what I'm talking about is if when you go to look at your bank account balance, if your heart starts racing, or maybe you start feeling tension in your shoulders, a lot of people even feel tension like in their knees and their ankles, right? So it's a bodily experience sensation. And you talked a little bit about the body mechanics, but this is really stored in what's called our limbic system. And our limbic system is where we experience our senses. And it also is the system that controls our emotions. So this is why we have these fight or flight emotions or behaviors kind of involved when we're talking about money trauma. When I was a kid, my dad would disappear for a month in his office to do taxes. And he got audited once. It was always trying to squeeze more juice out of the lemon with, from the government for money. And I grew up with a scarcity mindset in that regard. And my mom was frugal. We would buy jeans at Sears that actually stood up on their own because they were so stiff. So she was frugal, but the spender in the family. My dad was the earner, and he really promoted a scarcity mindset. But he was a doctor. He was a state-employed doctor, didn't make the private physician income. And I remember being traumatized by this. I still don't like taxes. And my first opportunity, I got an accountant and said, you take care of it. I'll help. But I don't really want to touch filling out the form. So I never really learned how to do taxes. I didn't learn the lines. I didn't learn the mechanics of it. And to this day, I'm okay. I can read it. But to do it would be in some ways, psychologically insurmountable for me. Becky, tell us about your early childhood money traumas. Well, Shauna, my parents were children of the Depression. And so I can see, and you were talking about how much of it is environmental. I mean, I can trace some of my beliefs about money back to my grandparents. I mean, obviously, I didn't know ancestors beyond them, but the behaviors that I learned from my mom and dad I could look behind them to their parents and see the same behaviors. So if yeah. we're not conscious of it, then I know it just keeps passing down from one generation to the next. But probably my biggest money trauma was as an adult. And if people haven't listened to mine and Bill's original stories, they can go back to the beginning episodes of the podcast and listen to our stories. But during the dark days of our financial life, when we had no income, and the debt just kept mounting up, there was definite trauma. I mean, I was not only fearful, I was panicked about yes. how are we going to climb out of this hole. So I felt all of that. And praise God, I'm on the other side of that now and understand how to handle my money better and I'm doing a better job of it. And I'm at peace with it now. But there were days when I thought, this is, this is awful. 
it feels terrible and it's never going to change. I think that was the, it felt hopeless, in other words. Well, it had a big impact on your marriage, right, Becky? I mean, we, we argue about money and the, 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 that and sex, right? The birds and the bees and money are the, mm-hmm. the two biggest sources of stress and trauma in relationships and marriages, I think. But we have an easier time talking about sex than we do about money. My wife and I will have our conflict. She's the natural big picture person, and I'm more the CFO in, 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 in the weeds. And that's the way it is with you. You're more in the weeds, mm-hmm. and your husband probably is the big picture person. Mm-hmm. But tell me, and, and, and for Shauna too, chime in on how these kinds of traumas impact a marriage. Oh, I mean, it's, gosh, everything you describe. I mean, it's huge. And I think it, Becky, like your situation, it creates PTSD-like symptoms. And so a lot of people with money trauma do have have panic feelings. They have panic moments that they don't understand. They have agitation and irritability and self-destructive behaviors, a lot of the things that you would see with PTSD. So you can imagine in a relationship how a lot of times the other partner doesn't even understand what's going on, right? There isn't like a vocabulary to explain or to explore because you don't even know that this is something as well. You just know that you're having these really strong emotions, the situation, the circumstance that you're in. But for a lot of us, it's a little like kind of mind baffling of like, well, why am I having such intense feelings? And then when you get to the other side of it, you can still have those feelings. There could be some sort of trigger that comes up or even somebody just mentioning the word money or talking about how they spent their money or something like that can instantly put you back in that place. So, I mean, in a relationship, it's just everything is just complicated. It's just more complex. And it's really because we don't understand our own relationship with money. And then we come into this partnership And if we don't understand our own relationship, it's impossible to understand the other person's relationship. And so it just creates areas of conflict. And then because money is this primal need, it's the thing we need, like air and water and food, mm-hmm. it's, gosh, it, everything just feels so critical to us. Even the smallest little things feel like big things to us. They were. I mean, buying groceries was a big thing at that point in time. And you talk about you don't understand your own relationship with money. Your spouse probably doesn't understand their relationship with money. And then you put those together and along with the fact that probably you weren't taught anything overtly about money, you were just supposed to figure it out. And so you put all these things in the same pot and stir it up. And it's like, no wonder (laughs) we can't figure out what to do. It's like the giant storm. Yes. (laughs) Well, it seems like to me, money trauma is universal. Uh, Do you have any idea what percentage in studies of individual folks in marriage have experienced money trauma? In marriage, I don't have a specific study. There was a study done by a company called Payoff in 2016, and it talked about 23% of Americans, about 36% of millennials experience some sort of money trauma and these, these debilitating kind of thoughts around money. But I mean, I don't think that is an accurate representation at all. I would argue that I feel, I feel personally that almost everyone has some form of money trauma. And I think the thing that is so interesting around when we use the word trauma is a lot of times people think it has to be something huge, right? Like Becky's situation where the money was just not coming in. Obviously, that is a traumatic experience. 
But there's a lot of ways that trauma shows up that y- you might not be sure, like, can, can I really label that as as trauma? So I think that we even look back to our childhood, right? This is some of the beliefs that our parents had, some statements that they had. Everybody has like this phrase that their parents said, like, money doesn't grow on trees, something that seems very gentle, but it manifests in us as some form of money trauma because it sort of keeps us in a box or a frame of thinking that is detrimental to taking the money steps that we need to live the life we want to live. So even things that feel very small actually could create some sort of money trauma in you. So when you're looking at that in terms of a partnership, a relationship, a marriage, I, I would argue that I feel almost every person walking on this planet has some form of of money trauma. It's to different varying degrees, but there's definitely damage that is there that we just don't really understand. When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I was paying for vacations all wrong. (laughs) I was missing out on miles. I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? I don't know, maybe that fancy hotel upgrade that you have always been dreaming about. Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. The weather is getting warmer. I'm so excited. And it is time to say goodbye to all those jackets and sweaters and hello to the shorts and t-shirts. I wanted to update my summer workout wardrobe for the long haul without, you know, spending a fortune. Luckily, I found Quince and I am in love. Quince is your go-to place from everything from premium European linen dresses, blouses and shorts from $30, washable silk tops, timeless, 14 karat gold jewelry, and so much more. The best part of all, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes those savings on to you. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices and premium fabrics and finishes. I love that. Okay, I bought the dreamiest pair of workout leggings and a bright pink workout top to match. Honestly, ladies, I gotta tell you, these leggings you need. The price cannot be beat, and I feel like a million bucks wearing this cozy workout friendly outfit. I've worn it for like five days straight. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash etm for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash ETM to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash ETM. I'm going to be real with you. Identity theft is on the rise, and you do not want to wake up one morning and discover that your bank account has been emptied or you're overdue on credit cards you never even applied for. We talk about this often on the podcast, but you don't realize how much of your information is available to scammers on the internet and how susceptible you and your family are to identity theft and fraud. I know, it's scary, but now you can get your data removed with Delete Me. 
That's why I personally choose Delete Me. Delete Me is a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web, and in the process helps prevent potential ID theft, doxing, and phishing scams. I just started using Delete Me and I got my regular personalized privacy report. <laughs> I was shocked what they found and removed. It was pages of information about me that I did not want online. Here's how it works. You sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted, and their experts take it from there. I cannot tell you how relieved I felt to have Delete Me. And you know, it's also a great service for your parents or grandparents to help protect them from identity theft. Delete Me is not just a one-time service. Delete Me is always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you do not want on the internet. Take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special price for my listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com etm and use promo code etm at checkout. The only way you get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash etm and enter code etm at checkout. J-O-I-N-D-E-L-E-T-E-M-E dot com slash E-T-M. Go to joindeleteme.com slash E-T-M and use code E-T-M for 20% off. I have a funny story because I was in the service industry as a waiter through college and med school. And I remember very distinctly when you just evoked a memory. You put yourself out there. You're trying really hard for people to have a wonderful experience. And then you have in this case, it was four ladies that have salad and water, and they leave you a little stack of dimes uh, for your tip. I mean, that's a that's a real story. And I'm just like, I really tried. <laughs> and uh, generosity uh, is, I think, one of the things that can heal money trauma, obviously. Uh, let's take us through the things like that that cause money trauma. This is our longest relationship, as you refer to it, in life. And it's not, like you said, it's not just the big things, but one of the things that we see in our audience is divorce. We have a, not an insignificant number of, in our case, women, or at least who speak out in our Facebook community that have had to restart their lives in many cases in sort of a gray-haired divorce in their 40s and 50s. That actually happened to my mother. That was one of the stressors among other issues in the marriage and family that led to their divorce in her 50s. And she ended up going back to school, going back to work, and working long hours, long shifts until she was 70. Tell us about that and other things that, and some of the little things that really have a lifelong impact. Yeah, that's definitely what's categorized as a acute money trauma. So things like divorce, death, chronic illness, like something that happened one moment in time. I can relate to your story. I got divorced when I was in my very early 30s. And even as a practicing money expert, I had to let go of every single asset that I owned because I was the only one working in the relationship at the time. And wow, I mean, talk about trauma. I spent a lot of time having to decondition from that experience and thinking that who am I to give people money advice? Like I just, I had to give up everything that I owned. I had a car 
that I, I had to my name that was still had a payments on it and it was very expensive. And I had a blue suitcase that I stuffed full of whatever I could from my house. And that was it. That was all I had to my name. But really, I think the great thing about if we can categorize this as going through money trauma is, gosh, you have so many lessons that you can teach other people that you can help other people through these really tough kind of moments in time. And I think that's the beauty of the human experience that we have what's classified as like chronic money trauma. So this is something that is, is going on and on. And we can look to things like sexism and racism and systemic poverty and financial abuse, like a business closing or being laid off. That is an example of that. For younger folks, I mean, even probably folks in their 40s and 50s, debt, right? So student loan debt is a big form of money trauma. A lot of people who still have student loan debt were hoping that there would be some sort of financial forgiveness, which didn't happen this year. And so a lot of people are back in kind of that traumatic mode of, oh my gosh, I still have to pay for these things. How is that going to work? I have become so debt averse that I think having to take on debt would be, any kind of debt would be traumatic for me. And so I just want to ask you a question. You said specifically student loan debt, but would you categorize debt, any kind of debt as a traumatic event? Absolutely. It's interesting, Becky. Uh, I was just having this conversation with someone last night who was asking me a form of the same question. Uh So yes, absolutely. Having debt, but also not having debt. So this person had never had any specific type of debt, and she was thinking about taking out a, a loan to remodel her kitchen. And the idea of having debt was traumatic to her. So it can work both ways, whether you're in debt or out of debt, but for sure debt, because it's this thing that just feels inescapable. I was numb to debt. I had kind of the opposite problem. And I think largely in our society, we are ingrained with being numb to debt. It's just a fact of life. The credit card debt problem, the student loan debt problem, the personal loan debt problem. You can afford a car if you can afford the payment. And you know we just carry this. And we don't necessarily realize what kind of a burden, how we are enslaved to the system, to the financial services industry. And we do it. And then we're all of a sudden locked into a 40-year career and we can't retire early. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exclamation mark. <laughs> yes, yes. I, I definitely wanted to make that point because other people have different opinions about debt, but I think for our audience specifically that carrying debt is a real roadblock to their path to financial independence. So I just wanted people to hear that, that debt is a form of financial trauma. Thank you. Oh, yeah. And we we had debt until about inclu- our mortgage debt until, I don't know, about five to seven years ago. And we we had a windfall and we were able to pay off our house. We went into the bank and we wrote the largest check of our lives. And we we were at the teller. I mean, it was just, it was was like such a huge deal for us. We were overjoyed. We were ebullient. And the teller goes, okay, that was great. (laughs) 
You're like, wait, there's no streamers and balloons and like, where's the party here? That's yeah, right. thank, you for the, thank you for the check. Next customer, please. <laughs> oh my God. I hope you went out and did something fun, like got a bottle of champagne or did, did something to celebrate that moment. Yeah, we, we did do a bottle of champagne. We didn't have the mortgage burning party, which I think can be a thing. It just looks like the gender reveal and we celebrate everything you know, over the top. But we did celebrate, and I'll tell you, it feels great. We, I would never go into quasi-retirement, that word again, but with debt, it just, I couldn't do it. And I can't ever go back. Mm-hmm. I agree. And another, a couple other forms of money trauma, like specifically when we're talking about older adults, is definitely healthcare costs. I think there's a lot of fear around how much healthcare is going to cost. That can cause a lot of trauma. The stats are in any partnership, married relationship, typically the husband passes away before the wife and typically you end up burning through most of the money to care for the husband. And then the wife is left with very little money and she's looking at a trajectory of of living longer than her spouse. And so that can cause a lot of uh, money trauma. And then I also see cognitive aging in, in older folks where you might be more exposed to financial scams and a lot of the things that there we get a million texts a day about all sorts of things. And I always have my parents saying, like, should I? I'm like, no, you should not. Don't click on anything. Don't reply to anything. And so things like that can cause, for sure can cause money trauma just as as you age. Okay, friend, I want to know, What are your money goals this year? Are you saving to buy a house or maybe a wedding or a dream vacation to somewhere tropical? If that's you, please, please take me with you. Or maybe you want to just grow your emergency fund because let's be real, life is expensive. I want to make sure you reach your goals. So you need Monarch. That's why the Wall Street Journal named it the best app for growing your savings. Monarch is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. You can create custom budgets, track progress towards your financial goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com etm. Here's what I love. Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. You can change the layout of your dashboard. You can go between light and dark mode. You can create custom budgets and notifications. You can set up all of these automatic rules for your transactions and notifications and so much more. Monarch is obsessed with constantly improving their product. Get this. They release updates every two weeks and they even allow customers to submit suggestions, vote on requested features, and view the product roadmap. This, my friend, is totally original. Plus, they will never sell your data to third party or show you ads. I think that's really important. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it is the top-rated personal finance app. And now, listeners of this show get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash etm. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash etm for your extended 30-day free trial. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, I just had a a fraud episode where I succumbed to one of those scams. Uh, It looked really like they said, you have a package waiting for you at the post office. And uh, and I don't know why I did this, but they said, you need to make this small payment and we'll hold it for you. And then you can come pick it up. Did it. Next thing I know, they're trying to charge $5,000 on my business card. And I'm still waiting for the card. And I'm just like, again? This because this has happened before where it wasn't my fault, but they just skimmed my card and took me for thousands of dollars. And thankfully, well, it was on a debit card, so it was hard to get that money back, much harder than a credit card. So, and and, this, and it happened to my mom. She succumbed to a Target card scam, scam where and it, it and you are more susceptible when you are fearful as you're older and you have this scarcity mindset. You're on a fixed income. It's pervasive and it's very scary. One of the things that that my husband and I and a group of friends that we're a part of have tried to do is make sure that we have laid out a plan so that when our own brains start not working properly, I mean, I'm 67, almost 68. So I know there's going to be a day when I don't understand financial concepts the way I do now. And I probably don't understand them now as good as I did 10 years ago. But knowing that we've laid out a plan for exactly how we want things to go, and we've shared that with our children already. As Cameron Huddleston a couple of episodes ago was talking about in making a plan when you're older. And I think that has helped me be more comfortable and and hopefully it will help me not be so worried and anxious 10 years from now because I've got it written out and I know what I'm expected to do when I reach that point. <laughs> I'm, I've left notes for my older self. <laughs> I love that. I love that. That's a great idea, though. I mean, what a way to pre-think about things and to plan the best way that you possibly can. I think when we talk about money trauma, it, it really does, when you're in a moment of money trauma or you're in a prolonged period of money trauma, it's you have an an inability to plan and an inability to organize and an inability to take the money steps that you you really need to take. So thinking about those things ahead of time, I think is a brilliant move. (laughs) And my reaction to money trauma is interesting because as you mentioned, it's emotional, it's visceral. And as I said before, I grew up in a scarcity mindset. And I also grew up in a deprivation mindset because I was a student forever. I, I lived the student poverty life uh, until I was 30, uh, roughly, when I came out of residency. And I had established not a mountain of, but significant credit card debt because I deserved things that I couldn't pay for. And, but my response was interesting. A lot of pilks have a, a, a resultant frugality response from scarcity. I did not. I had a spendthrifty response. Why are our responses so various and different? You would have thought I'd be more frugal and cautious, but I I threw caution to the wind. I think it's not rational, 
right? Our, our response to money trauma or any money situation that we go through, our reactions are not always rational. So a lot of times we do see when somebody's in the situation you're in, go to overspending, go to that place of just throwing caution to the wind. And I think it's it's wrapped up in this like chemical response that we need. We all spend more money than we should, and we can use air quotes for all of this, but there is an, an, an emotional chemical response that happens in our bodies. So if we're in a moment where we don't feel good about money or we've come through a traumatic period of time, spending money, gosh, that makes us feel good, right? It, it, it's like the endorphins. Mm-hmm. It uh, releases those chemicals in us and we're like, oh, okay, I feel good, even though I know I should not have probably done that or bought that thing or whatever that might be, but gosh, I feel good, right? And so it's that rush of energy and it's addictive and you just want to keep kind of coming back for more. So overspending is a very common response to almost any type of money trauma, even though rationally it, it seems like the opposite thing that you would that you would choose to do. Mm. Yeah, I think you can judge uh, spendthriftiness by the number of Amazon boxes that show up at your house every day. <laughs> the, 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 the one-click shopping, and it's just you're sitting there at night watching TV, and you're like, I need this, and swipe. It's kind of like Tinder. Swipe right, swipe right, swipe right. Mm-hmm. And I had a period of time where that was the case. My wife gave me a hard time about it, and that's the little ways. And then there you mentioned the car. You had the big expensive car. We had that too. We could afford the payment. We could afford the car. And it just rolled forward. It would The Amazon boxes just compound into the larger things, the big things that you really mm-hmm. got to pay attention to. And like housing, as we've talked about before, we built two houses. And we, why were we doing that? We didn't need to do it. Buy a used house. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> buy used clothes. It, 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 it all is interrelated, right? Mm-hmm. But Bill, you said scarcity thinking, especially from your childhood. And I think that's something that we all can relate to. And it makes sense. We live in a very scarcity-driven society. The financial system has been created based off scarcity. So it's almost impossible to not have a, a, a scarcity mindset when you're thinking about money. So I, I think it's really easy to get caught up in things. And I think this comes back to a lot of things that I talk about when people say, well, like, what can I do? And I come back to things like journaling and writing and spending time to think about your money journey and really have this awareness of what is actually the vision that I have for my life? Like, what are the things that I actually want? What are the things that matter to me? How do I actually want to spend my money? And I tell people, you're spending, it tells a story of you. It's the story of you. Is it telling the story that you want it to tell? And so this comes back to this idea of bringing authenticity to our money and putting blinders on to what other people are doing. And it's hard to do when we're operating in a very scarcity. You've mm-hmm. got to have this thing or you're not going to, you're going to run out of money. You don't have enough. And all of those messages alone can cause trauma. So it's about kind of quieting the situation and really having some sort of awareness of your own life and your own journey and what matters and what doesn't. Mm-hmm. Shauna, let's talk a little bit about what does money trauma look like? And then I want to get to, okay, how do we recognize it? And then what do we do about it? So t- tell us what money trauma looks like. 
Yeah. So I I tend to say the more like hyper-focused you are on something is usually a good indicator that there's some sort of money trauma there, which really is why I ask people this question all the time that seems very simplistic, but how do you feel about money? And then I ask them to ask them, I ask them that question. And then when they give me an answer, I say five whys. So, okay, if you say, well, I, I feel stressed about money. Okay, tell me why. Well, I just never feel like I have enough money. Okay, why? So like we keep get digging down until we can get to some sort of like foundational level where we can really understand what are we playing with? What is kind of the, the bottom thing that is causing this, this sort of hyper-focused reaction to money? And so then the second thing is really checking in with your body. So when you go to pay your bills, when you open your banking app, when you're driving up to the ATM, when your partner is talking about money, when you're watching news and there's a, what is happening in your body? Are you noticing that certain people or certain places are triggering a response in you? That's usually a good indicator that there is some sort of money trauma that exists in those particular circumstances. Okay, what is that? It, it could be for a lot of people, it's a specific person. Maybe somebody in your life has criticized how you spend and save money. And so anytime you're around that person, you're in like a very hyper vigilant kind of mode, even if money isn't being discussed, right? So I think we have this nature about us where we tend to be detached from our bodies. Bill, you're a doctor, right? So you're all about like the body and what's going on. So being reattaching ourselves to what's going on in our bodies and also powerfully, what are we thinking? Like, what are our thoughts telling us about money, about debt, about the situation we're in, right? They, it starts to give you a lot of clues. So I, we talked about overspending. Overspending is a way that we kind of counteract money trauma or we, we see it played out. The flip side of that is not spending enough money. And this is something where a lot of women actually fall in this category where we're just so fearful of making the wrong choice that we actually make no choice. And so I worked with a lot of women who made very good money and they would have hundreds of thousands of dollars sitting in a checking account. When there was just this fear of investing that money or fear of making the wrong choice. And so they just wouldn't do anything at all. But you could have codependent behavior. So even if you are fully capable of making money decisions, but you are codependent on somebody else for them to handle everything and for them to make all the money decisions. And then just avoidance, right? So just completely shutting down when any discussion around money or anything around money comes up, you just shut down. You don't look at your bank account. You don't know how much you're spending. You just like, you're just going to avoid it altogether. So those are kind of the the four main ways that we see money trauma kind of played out. I'd like to mention the avoidance thing. I mean, that was a coping mechanism for me. Uh, I never learned how to partition my paycheck. And I got my first big boy paycheck and the impulse was to spend. It was not to save. I didn't have the right sequence of events, habits ingrained in my brain. And then what happened was I avoided it and we got busy with life. We had children. We had twins. We were instantly overwhelmed. And the focus, if, since I didn't have that basic foundational approach to money, I just avoided it. And it, it mm -hmm. carried forward mm -hmm. for 20 years. 
20 years. It's a, that one critical decision. I mean, it's like somebody pulling you aside when you're a young person and say, max out your 401k, save first. And that's all you got to say. If somebody had just said that to me, it could have completely changed my life. And avoidance led to this catastrophic trauma wake-up, just like Becky had. Mm -hmm. And it seems mm -hmm. like just such a common story for our audience. It, it was unbelievable to me that I could, that 20 years passed in a blink of an eye, and we hadn't saved and taken care of ourselves for retirement. Did you see that a lot? Oh, I did. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I can agree, agree with both of you. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. But I think interesting when you bring this up, Bill, too, because even if somebody had pointed that out to you when you got the big boy check, right? We could flip a coin on this, but like, would you have actually made that that choice? I wouldn't have. I know that for sure. Yeah, I think the answer <laughs> is you probably would have made the same set of choices that you made. And I think this comes back to everything we're talking about, mindset, money, drama, relationship with money, and all these things that we just don't understand. And so we pick an impulse that feels good to us at the particular point in time. I mean, if all of us, like if all of us, when we turned 20, somebody like magically 21, somebody magically pointed to us and said, okay, right now, how much money do you have? Put it in a, put it in a retirement account, like right now and keep doing that. Like if someone would have just automatically like programmed that into us, think of how we would all be so set up. It would be ridiculous. That's right. That's right. Well, I'm doing that. I'm doing that with my kids and, and we're, and we're trying to subvert generational money trauma. And I'm very proud to say that my son just opened his or dive, dove into his first 401k. And we looked at the plan together. We realized that it was a really crappy plan. It was a large organization that still charges 12-1B uh, fees and front-loaded fees and on all, on all their proprietary funds that are their own indices. Luckily, they had target date funds. Not the greatest for a, a young 20s person. You want to be, I think, 100% equities. But we got him locked in. And I said, maybe he knows after reading a book or two for me that he needed to get his free money. He needed to, at least in this bad fund, put aside 5% there and then max out his Roth at the same time. And as we were stumbling through his money and working through this, he was extremely grateful. It's like, okay, let's for holding his hand through this because it's overwhelming. You try and dive into this and look at it, you immediately go into avoidance. It's like, this is too much. This is absolutely too much. And we also had to make sure that even though he was investing regularly in his Roth, that it was actually getting invested and it wasn't sitting in his settlement fund because you could make that mistake for in perpetuum and not realize that, oh my God, I'm not taking advantage of compounding at all. So there was all these little things. Mm -hmm. And one of the other things we realized too was all of a sudden I saw this in, in his checking account, a credit card bill for a significant amount of money, three and a half percent of his pre-tax income. And I'm like, that's a huge credit card bill. What happened there? Let's talk about a budgeting app. And I made a recommendation. I say, this is like a utility. This is like electricity, a budgeting app. And you with your lower income situation, you've got to make every penny have a job, not just every dollar and focus more on frugality. And if it means having potlucks and not eating out with all your friends at these expensive restaurants, that's what it means because that's the season of life you're in, right? Mm -hmm. I love that story too. And I think the brilliance, Bill, of, of why this probably worked so well is that you are money aware. Like you have done the work on yourself 
and you have explored these concepts and worked on your relationship with money. And so you come to that conversation with this openness and I think this place of gosh, just maybe like calm clarity around money that a lot of probably our parents didn't have that position if they were ever talking to us about money because a lot of them didn't understand what was going on with money as well. So I love that that you share that story because I think it shows that you were able to understand enough about yourself to be able to talk to your kid about rather than saying like, you have to do this. And this, rather than it being an order, it was really coming from this place of, of, of kindness and gratitude and grace. And I think that's probably why it worked so well. Well, he wanted to sit down because it was overwhelming. And I'd been known as lecture daddy. They did not want to hear about money. Well, you can make as many speeches as you want. And just like you said, for me, it, it, is it going to change your behavior? Is it going to change your habits? And when I woke up and learned that saving first was the only way to do this. I get excited about it. A paycheck drops in my account. And the first thing, I mean, you want to automate it, but in my case, I can't because of the account. And I have to, the first clicks I make are maxing out my 401k and then the waterfall into savings. And that it's gamified. And I'm like, I have this habit now where I, I get nervous and fearful if I don't do it. It's exactly the opposite <laughs> of the way I lived before. I flipped the script and that's what our audience is uh, trying to do. They're trying to hear that, yes, they can do it. It can be done in 12, 13 years, just like Becky did it. And all you got to do is flip the script, right? <laughs> you made me think of something just now, Bill. We talk about the, the, like the dopamine hit you get when you buy something. And, and I was like Bill when I got out of college. I had lived with deprivation mindset. And so I became an overspender also. It's like, yeah, I've got some money. I'm going to have some fun. But now I'm such a money nerd <laughs> that I get the dopamine hit when I could put something in savings or when I look at, <laughs> when I look at my Vanguard accounts or whatever. <laughs> but that's great. Like you've retrained yourself. You've retrained that thought process around like what a dopamine hit is, right? And decondition. You're like, okay, now this is the dopamine hit now. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Oh, and, and Shauna, this reminds me of a story I heard you tell about ATM receipts. <laughs> can, can, oh, can you tell yes. us the ATM this story? Is a famous story. I, I tell everyone, I just hated ATM receipts. I am the type of person where my brain, obviously, probably for the work I do, works really well with numbers. But it works in the inverse, like for me personally, because I, I can look at an ATM receipt and I can see, oh, I have X amount of dollars in my bank account. And I start subtracting out all the things that I know I have to pay. And the train wreck of the story gets me to a place where I have zero dollars left, no more money's coming in, and I'm suddenly going to be sleeping on the street. Like that's just the train wreck that just automatically, I mean, talk about money trauma, the automatic kind of train wreck story that happens for me. And so when we used to go to the bank, I would drive up, get the ATM receipts, and I learned how to make origami. And so I would fold each ATM receipt into some mangled like origami shape and just shove it in my wallet. And then I, after a week or so, I'd, however long I'd take those out and I just, I'd throw them in just a, an organizing thing on my desk and I would never look at them. I mean, there was, there was so much fear I had and it was completely irrational because I knew there was money in my bank account. So there was nothing rational about this experience. But when I was going through my divorce, I remember the first time I pulled up to the ATM after I had separated and I thought, okay, 
I was the third car in line and I gave myself a pep talk. I'm like, okay, like this is the moment. I help other people do this all the time. This is the moment for me. I'm going to get that ATM receipt and I'm going to look at it and I'm not going to fold it up. And it was a really hard moment. I mean, I negotiated with myself as I'd got up to like the second car in line and then I got up to the first car. I'm like, well, maybe I do it next time. I, like it doesn't have to be this time. I think, no, okay, I have to do this. If I'm helping other people do this, I have to do this for myself. And so it wasn't immediate fix. I mean, there were still some origami shapes that happened <laughs> after that. But that's just how this stuff works. It affects all of us. <laughs> yes. Hopefully the hilarity of that, like you can see yourself kind of in that own experience with money. Yeah. yeah. So let's ask ourselves some questions. When, when we get into our internal sense of this is who I am, this is my why, what questions do you ask yourself to figure out that, yes, I am suffering from money trauma? Well, the first question is, do you have intrusive money thoughts that kind of keep going through your head while you're at work or while you're asleep? Like, are you waking up in the middle of the night and you're thinking about something about money? What are those thoughts? Like, what are they? What are they about, right? This comes back to our, like, asking five whys and trying to dig down to the surface. Do we overspend? Yes, no, and why? What is prompting us? Is it that we're feeling empty inside and the overspending is like filling us up metaphorically? Why are we overspending? How does underspending or overspending, how does that show up in our life? Does it influence our interactions with people? Like, when we're around a certain person, do we tend to overspend or underspend? Mm. What is going on in those situations? Mm. So don't ever overlook that a person or a place can actually influence your spending saving behavior. Those two things are very, very critical for a lot of people. We can also look at like workaholism, right? Do you excessively work to, to be able to like fill a need not only just practically financially, right, but you're also trying to fill some sort of void that you feel. And another thing is like financial dependence, right? So looking in your life and is there anything I'm financially dependent on that is is not a, a good dependency, right? We all have dependencies, but is there anything out of the ordinary? And then we talked about a, a, avoidance, which I think is something that we can all relate to is, do you have financial avoidance? What are those what are the things that are causing you to avoid certain things? Like for me, my ATM receipt was complete financial avoidance. Well, what was that about? Like, where did that story come from? Where did I feel like I was going to look at an ATM receipt and then I was going to have to sleep on a street? Like, how, how did I make that thought connection in my head? And what's the story underneath that? So I think those are some questions to think about. And also just coming back to this being really observant of your body and your thoughts. So when you're in specific situations and you feel something of just pausing and noticing, okay, where I'm feeling this in my, my shoulders are getting really tight. Like, what is that about? Like, where does that come from? So really doing this, being like an investigator, I say, right? An own detective of what's going on in your life, I think is a really good place to start. Oh, that's awesome. Because you do have to ask yourself questions. You shouldn't just plow ahead like I did. Therapy for yourself and emotions is actually money therapy because it's not just money traumas that cause money trauma. You, you can have your own mental health issues, your own PTSD outside of the fact uh, that it, it manifests itself 
as a money behavior, right? Mm-hmm. A thousand percent. Shauna, I want to ask a question because that's, we're probably going to get next into what do we do about this? How do we heal from this? But my question right now is, is identifying and recognizing this in ourselves, is that like the biggest piece of this? A thousand percent, Becky. Yeah, I think it's because we're taking the spotlight, right? And we're shining it and we're saying, oh, this exists. Okay, now let me let me see what this is about. Like, let me explore this. If we look at like therapy, that's what therapy primarily does, right? It's it's the exploration of what's going on. What are the feelings? What are the thoughts? Like, what is the story that's going on? So, I definitely always say you can we can work with a financial therapist, but if if you can't afford that, or I really feel a lot of this work can be done yourself if you allow yourself to to explore these different topics. Mm-hmm. All right, let's heal. Let's find out. Our audience wants to know what do I do then? I've recognized it. Okay. I've made my financial plan and I'm not acting on it. Something's preventing me from doing that. So how do I heal that I take action? Those steps that are, are, are part of recovery. The first place I want you to, to go is to look back at your money story, to look back at those, those first seven years. What do you remember? I don't have a big memory back zero to seven. But what can you explore if there are people in your life that are still around that walk through those years with you? Ask them questions. Hey, what was my experience like? Or what did, what did our parents talk about? Or what was going on economically? What were the messages around money, right? For women, I think we can look back to pre-1970s and women were excluded from the money conversation, right? Well, there's a lot of trauma that exists in, in that place. So I think thinking about that, thinking about that time period, certainly talking to a therapist is great if if you have that available to you. There are a handful of, of money therapists around that can explore these topics with you. But some of my favorite things are, are journaling. I, I love journaling. I started a practice that I started it earlier this year. And I tell everyone because I love it so much is every morning I write, hey, money, comma, And then I tell money whatever is going on for me, right? So sometimes it's a word. Sometimes it's like, oh, I'm feeling this thing right now. I just kind of want to get this out on paper, right? So there are, um, you know, numerous studies that show getting something from head out on paper helps you release it. So I do that practice, but you could journal about anything. It could be exploring these different questions. You could ask yourself a different question a day. Like there's lots of ways you could do this. And I think, Becky, you talked about something earlier. I think you were talking about giving ourselves grace, right? So so self-care is really important. So when you notice and you recognize that there are money trauma or people or places or different things in your life that are causing these situations to happen, there's no judgment. There's no shame, right? So that that's the worst thing you can do when you're doing this process. So giving yourself some self-care, some self-love, like, okay, this happened. Cool. And it's maybe showing up in my money life this way. Okay, great. Now what can I do about it, right? So empowering yourself. But don't overlook things like going for a walk or any of the other sort of self-care things, yoga, like anything that makes you feel good, sitting out in nature, I created something that I call the 24-hour spending pause. Uh, You can take this and make this your own. But if I'm shopping online, I have a habit of putting a lot of things in my shopping cart. And so I make myself wait 24 hours before I can come back and see if 
I really want to buy these things. And nine out of 10 times, I get rid of most of the things in my cart, right? But it's it's a a boundary that I put up for myself to say, okay, I know I probably tend to overspend sometimes and buy things that I don't actually need. So let me just create a little boundary, a little healthy kind of boundary for myself. So creating moments of pause where you can pause between making a decision or or having a specific train of thoughts. For me, when I'm driving up to that, get my ATM receipt, it's a moment of pause, like telling myself, this is fine. These numbers are okay. Well, we just talked to Manisha Thakur and she talks about little T traumas and, but, and she says sort of the same stuff with regards to it's about slowing down. It's about being instead mm-hmm. of doing. Mm-hmm. It's about not reacting. Because reaction, knee-jerk reactions come from that fight or flight. Oh, I've got to do something now. But no, you don't. The first thing you got to do when you wake up as a late starter is pause, right? Yeah, Mm -hmm. absolutely. Pause. Like, Give yourself that space and that time. It's like the most beautiful gift, especially if we're examining these like tough money concepts and these things that for a lot of us, money trauma... It's so deeply ingrained in who we are and how we operate. So doing that work, it's heavy lifting. Mm -hmm. So giving yourself those moments of pause, I think, is so important. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm the kind of personality that my mantra would be, don't just stand there, do something. And sometimes I have to be, don't do something, just stand there. (laughs) <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's like John Bogle. Market's falling. Pause. Don't do anything. Don't yeah. react. Don't sell. Right. 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 So you, you have to stop and think. And I want to just plow forward. <laughs> and right. t- a lot of times it, I, I make a lot of mistakes when I do that. Well, yeah, my, my mantra for these kinds of things is pause, plan, and then pivot. Ooh, I like that. That's good. Just the three P's of recovery mm-hmm. in my mind. Yep. Yep. And I, I like your journaling idea, Shauna. I've probably about five years ago, I started journaling and it's so meaningful to me and it, and nobody else sees it, but I can put all of my feelings down and my thoughts and it, it just is so cathartic, I think, to, to write them out because that process of writing, you're processing it in your brain rather than ignoring it. And I've found that's very helpful for me. Well, Shauna, we're coming to the end of our show. And I think we've covered a lot of mindset topics. I really think that this is the game changer. Yes, the 20% where you get your math together and then get your habits straightened out and then work the plan. That's the easy part. We've been talking about the hard part today. And the fact Mm -hmm. that you're focused on this and we're getting this message out there through you is awesome. So I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for being on the show with us and taking us through the hard stuff. Oh, thank you for having me. I mean, I, I just, I love talking about this. And I think what you're saying is so right. Like, this is such an important piece of the journey that. I just love that I'm able to bring these conversations to more people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And Bill, in a recent episode, we talked to Manisha, like you mentioned earlier. And I think these two topics dovetail together so well. They're not talking about the math of personal finance, but we're talking about the emotional and the structural and the all the other pieces 
that go along with that. And, and so I think these two messages are so well timed together. Well, Manisha talks about Money Zen. That's the title of her book. And getting through it, we actually did it backwards. We talked to you today, and your episode <laughs> will probably come out after hers, but that's okay. Uh, it, it does all interrelate. And it, it, we do want to reach a place of abundance as opposed to scarcity. We want to reach a place of peace with, with our plan, because mm-hmm. uh, the plan isn't just the 13 years to retirement. The plan is for life. It's through to the, to the end of life. And you know, it's not just about that focused time of frugality and, and, and focus on the money. It's about planning for the rest of your life. It's about understanding yourself so that you can have a healthy financial life. And thank you today for helping us learn how to have a healthy financial life. We look forward to talking to you again soon.